Hi, it's Alice. If Anthony Fauci wasn't on your radar before the COVID-19 pandemic, he certainly is now. Dr. Fauci is a lead member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force and a trusted daily presence in the news. Many now view him as America's MD. We told the inspiring story of Dr. Fauci's life and career on this podcast in July of 2018. Under the circumstances, it seemed time for an encore. Here at What It Takes, we wish you good health during these difficult times. Here's what keeps Anthony Fauci up at night. Ebola, plague, SARS, Zika, HIV, AIDS, influenza, anthrax, or an outbreak of some entirely new infectious disease he knows he'll wake up to one morning that threatens to kill large numbers of people. It happened 37 years ago. I was sitting in my office one day in the clinical center at the NIH, and a morbidity and mortality weekly report landed on my desk dated June 4th, 1981. And it was the report of five gay men from Los Angeles who were otherwise well, who came up with a bizarre syndrome uh, uh, called pneumocystis pneumonia, an infection. Now, most people didn't have any idea what pneumocystis pneumonia was, but I did because I was an infectious disease doc at the time. I was board certified in infectious disease, and I had the opportunity to see a lot of patients on the Cancer Institute as a consult to them when they developed infection. And the only people that develop infection with pneumocystis are people who are immunosuppressed. Something is wrong with their immune system. So I immediately said, gee, there's something really wrong here. A month later, 26 patients, all gay men, were reported now from New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, not only with pneumocystis pneumonia, but with sarcoma, another disease that only occurs in people with suppressed immune systems. And I made a decision in life at that time, this just landed on my desk, that since I was an infectious disease person, and since I was an immunologist, I was gonna completely turn around the direction of my career and start studying this handful of gay men thinking that was the only thing. And I remember writing something that was one of the most prescient things, I didn't think it was prescient at the time, and in a, in a review saying that anybody who thinks that this is gonna remain constrained to an epidemiologically restricted population doesn't know really anything about infectious diseases because it was clear that this was a sexually transmitted disease. The years that immediately followed were very dark ones. At first, there wasn't even a test for the infection and half of the HIV infected patients who walked into his clinic died within six to eight months. There are still 40 million people living with HIV around the world today, and there are almost 2 million new infections each year. But Anthony Fauci's research has been absolutely critical to understanding the disease and to developing the therapies that manage and contain it. 37 years later, he is still at the forefront of the research into HIV AIDS and other daunting infectious diseases too, including malaria and tuberculosis. Dr. Fauci has been the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, part of the National Institutes of Health, for over 30 years. Infectious diseases cause somewhere between a quarter and a third of all deaths in the world. They're the leading cause of death for people under 50. So that gives you an idea of the scale of his portfolio. His sleepless nights let us all sleep a little better. Anthony Fauci is on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam A., this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, 
But boy, you better not miss him. I came from a uh, Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, about four hours north of here. And for those of you who know anything about New York and the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn, the very fact that I'm here is my first major accomplishment. <laughs> Bensonhurst was a largely Italian neighborhood when Anthony Fauci was growing up. His grandfather was an immigrant to this country who spoke only Italian and worked as a stevedore with cargo ships that came into New York Harbor. His father was a pharmacist. And that's where Dr. Fauci began his story, in Brooklyn, when he sat down to talk with NPR's Nina Totenberg in 2017 for the Academy of Achievement. He owned the drugstore, and my sister and I and my mother and father lived in the apartments above the drugstore. So he owned the building, and we lived on the top of that. And that's where I lived until I went away to college. And you worked in the, in the drugstore? I did. Uh, it was a pharmacy that was right across the street from St. Bernadette's Church. And what we used to do is that when the masses would finish on a Sunday, there would be crowds and crowds of people that would come into the pharmacy and not only just for prescriptions, but for cosmetics and things like that. So from a very, very early age, I would help out behind the counter with the cash register and wrapping things. But in the summers and sometimes in the evenings, I would use my Schwinn bike with its little basket and deliver uh, prescriptions to the neighborhood people. So back then, it was very common for calling up the pharmacy or getting a prescription done and you would deliver it to the house. And that's what I remember doing from the time I could ride my bicycle. Your education was entirely up until medical school in Catholic schools. Um, you started out at Our Lady of Guadalupe Grammar School, and then you were picked for a very special private Jesuit-run high school. It was not in Brooklyn. So tell me about Regis High School. Okay, so Regis High School is an all-scholarship high school right in the middle of Manhattan. Meaning it's free. It's free. So you had to have been put forth as the representative of your elementary school. So it, academically, it was extraordinary because you had kids from there from all over Manhattan, Bronx, Staten Island, Queens, Brooklyn, some from Connecticut, some as far away as New Jersey. So it was a very, very good mixture of people from different backgrounds. And how long did it take you to, you, I presume you commuted on the subway. Right. Well, I became a real subway jockey f from a very early age there. That's, uh, I would say, about an hour, um, maybe a little bit more, depending upon, you know, the, I never remember the trains breaking down, unlike Washington, D.C. <laughs> or I, New I, York I, today. I can't, I can't remember the trains ever breaking. It was about, it was about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes sometimes, but, you know, coming home uh, was interesting because I was on the basketball team. I was the captain of the basketball team. And we wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. wait a minute. Stop. You were on the basketball team. Yes. How tall are you now? Well, I was 5'7 then, and I'm a, probably 5'6 now <laughs> at my age. I've shrunk a little. So you were the captain? I was, I was the captain and high scorer of the basketball team, right? That was before... That was the day of the two-handed jump shot and the fast break, and you didn't have to be very good at a jump shot because we didn't take jump shots. Then it was mostly fast break set shots and things like that, and I was very good at that at the time. And then I realized I, I really wanted to become a, a serious athlete in college. And then I got to realize what really good basketball players were because uh, I, I soon learned, and I tell a joke about this, but it's true, I soon learned that a 6-3 really fast point guard who can shoot will always destroy a 5-7 really good point guard who could shoot. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my realization. Okay, I think maybe there's something else in my career besides, uh, besides basketball. So... I'm not sure that my notes were right here, but you studied Greek and Latin? Yes. So, yeah, in, in, in high school, as part of the uh, required curriculum was four years of Latin and three or four years of Greek, 
and three years of a Romance language, I picked French, as well as the other things that you do in high school, you know, math, uh, English, uh, biology, and, and things like that. But it was very, very heavily weighted to the classics, and that continued over. It was something that I tell my children about, and they shake their heads in disbelief. Back then, when I graduated from Regis, the Jesuits would essentially tell you what college you're going to be going to, that you're a really smart guy and you want to go into pre-med, so you're going to go to Holy Cross. So I went to Holy Cross, College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, which was a very interesting place because it had a spectacularly good and highly rated pre-med program. And retrospectively, it was really a good idea for what I do now in life and the kinds of things I have to deal with. It was a pre-med course which had this strange, almost oxymoronic name of Bachelor of Arts Greek Classics dash pre-med. So you didn't get a Bachelor of Science, you got a Bachelor of Arts, and I took over 25 credits of philosophy, as well as two years of Greek, two years of Latin, two years of French, and then enough of the sciences to get into medical school. But it was very heavily steeped in philosophy, and I was taking, and you talk to people now, why would a pre-med want to do this? You know, metaphysics, ethics, philosophical psychology, all those kinds of things that I still can't remember at all what it was all about back then, but I did that. And so I graduated with a very much of a humanitarian, classics, humanities background. And I went to medical school, and that's when I came back to New York City. So I want to go back to Regis for a minute, where you were also taking Greek, Latin, French first, right? Right. right. You said to me that it was, in some ways, the defining academic experience of your life. What do you mean by that? Well, it was the atmosphere of having around you an extraordinarily diverse group of kids who were picked purely on their academic ability. That's it. And you had... Um, the Jesuit tradition, which taught you, you strive for excellence and nothing else. Um, don't you know, go crazy about it if you, if you don't accomplish something, but at least you strive for excellence always. And their motto is, it was only men then, it was men for others. So what you do has to be guided by something that would be better for mankind. It never got into the dialogue of, I'm going to do this for self-advancement. It's always do it, self-advancement would come, but the reason why you should be doing things is for others. And that was kind of, um, you wouldn't say drilled into you, it was, that's the way it was. And when you went there and learned that, that became part of your personality, that you were striving for excellence always, but the issue of service to others, one way or another. And they didn't say that everybody had to be a public servant or everybody had to be a doctor. You could go and be a Wall Street magnet if you wanted to, but you had to keep in mind that what you did had to have some aspect of it that would be good for other people. And that was taught right from the minute you walked into the school. So Regis High School brought about the first transformation of Anthony Fauci. The next would come, he told Nina Totenberg, at Cornell Medical Center in New York City, where he went to medical school and did his residency. I mean, when I got to medical school, that was, I think, the real, true birth of the Tony Fauci that I am today. Medical school was absolutely made for me, and I was made for medical school. I absolutely loved it. I loved it because the curve of learning and learning and then applying it to things that, A, are important, that you care about, and that are fulfilling that thing that has been subconsciously drilled into your midbrain, the idea about doing things for others. So I, I, I absolutely love medical school. I loved my internship and my residency. At the time, it was different than it is today. Um, I can't make judgment better or worse, but now, you know, you're on for a certain number of hours. 
and then you have to leave, mm -hmm. uh, and you can't be tired. Back then, when I was an intern and a couple of years of residency, and then a chief residency, um, we were on every other night and every other weekend, and you never ever left the hospital unless your patient was stable. So you may be on every other night and every other weekend, but there were days in a row when you just wouldn't leave. You take a cat nap here and a cat nap there, and you wouldn't and you wouldn't go. Now, if you're the kind of person that doesn't function well under that, that's dangerous, and that's a good reason why there are restrictions now. But if you happen to be somewhat of a type one maniac the way I am, that feeds right into the things you love. I mean, just doing that and doing all of those very important things and realizing that sometimes when you're really tired, you could just pull yourself up and get it done, you know, and just, you know, that the terminology that my daughters use now was sort of born then, like suck it up and do it. And that's what we did. So I, I really enjoyed that. And do you remember any, what I would call, light bulb moments? Um, how, how natural I felt taking care of someone who is really sick surprised me. Because depending upon what your fundamental nature is, and this isn't good or bad or better than something, it's just the way you are, is that for me, the sick of the patient the better I functioned. And that's, you know, that's why I went into infectious diseases ultimately, because it's such a dramatic aspect of medicine. You know, you die or you get better, you know, that, that kind of thing. But I loved every aspect of medicine. I mean, probably the most enjoyable part of my medical school was something I didn't do, ultimately, was OBGYN. It was just delivering babies. I mean, the phenomenon of delivering babies was amazing. The allure of new life. But Dr. Anthony Fauci went forward with his plan to try to save lives. As soon as his residency ended at Cornell, he went to the National Institutes of Health, where in no time he was recognized as a wunderkind. In the NIH division known as NIAD, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, he quickly rose to become head of the clinical physiology section, then head of the laboratory of immunoregulation, and then, a few years later, the director of NIAD itself. That was in 1984. It's the position he still holds today. If you Google Anthony Fauci, the word you'll find over and over is pioneer. His scientific findings have revealed much of what we understand about the human immune response and led to treatments for so many diseases, ones you know well that may scare the bejesus out of you, and a lot more you may have never even heard of. When I came down to the NIH after my residency in 1968, it was a period of time when we were just starting to get insight about the human immune system. It was a, an infant field. It wasn't what it is now with all the technologies that we have. And I had this dual interest of infectious diseases and the immune system, and how the immune system is regulated, and there are a number of diseases of hyperactivation of the immune system, referred to as autoinflammatory or autoimmune diseases. Two or three in particular were very lethal, with almost 100% mortality. One was called, it used to be called Wegener's granulomatosis, now it's called granulomatosis with vasculitis. Strange names, not rare, but unusual diseases, polyarteritis nodosa, some of the other autoimmune diseases. And some of them were highly lethal. You would get pulmonary failure, you would get renal failure, and the patients would die. And since I was interested in the immune system, I was saying, is there any way that we can suppress the immune system enough to suppress the disease but not enough to make a person susceptible to the secondary infections you get when you knock out someone's immune system. So, for example, the drugs that we used for cancer, cyclophosphamide, a variety of other drugs, when given to people who have cancer, you want to completely kill all the cells. The problem is those people are susceptible then to a lot of things like infections and bleeding because platelets go low. And it happened that in the National Cancer Institute, which was two floors away from us in the old building, where I would go up there all the time as the infectious diseases consult because they were getting immunosuppressed and they were getting infections. 
So we got the idea that if we could somehow give a cancer drug at a low enough dose, but monitor the immune function and the white cell function of the people enough to kind of titrate the dose, could you turn the disease off without any of the secondary complications? And we did. And we took a disease that was 98% fatal and we had 93% remission rates in that. So from way back then, we used that model to create therapies that would have been unheard of. It was very daring to do that then, to give, I mean, people looked at me like I was crazy. Why, you're giving a cancer drug to someone who doesn't have cancer? <laughs> That's really what I was doing very successfully, and I became probably prematurely well-known because of that. And just as a stroke of fate, I always had this nagging feeling about, you know, wanting to do something that is involved fundamentally infectious diseases that involved things that were broadly uh, impacting globally. And then almost like a quirk of fate, out of nowhere in 1981 comes a disease that is clearly an infectious disease that's impacting the immune system. Like, we've never seen anything like that. But how could you have an infectious disease that actually attacks the immune system? What the hell is going on here? And for a couple of years before the virus was discovered by Montagnier and then by Gallo to prove that it is, we were seeing things that were amazing. Just, you almost couldn't make it up. We had a ward full of young, almost all gay men who were otherwise well, who would come in with the most devastating opportunistic infections. And it was that kind of uh, involvement back then with very little attention paid by the public or the government at the time. That was another triggering thing for me to make a career change. And that's what you might call Anthony Fauci's next transformation. From an in-the-trenches doc, a bench scientist, to the guy calling the shots and setting the direction of a massive medical research institution, something he'd never imagined for himself. I looked down upon administration. Oh my God, administration, what a bunch of stodgy people who don't know what they're doing. And then the directorship of the, of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases opened up. So they asked me if I wanted to do that. Traditionally, before then, directors never saw patients and they never had any labs. So I figured I had nothing left to lose. So I said, you know, you know, I, I'll be happy to do this, but what I had in mind was if I did it, I was gonna take this sleepy field of infectious diseases, which was like the sixth or seventh largest institute at NIH with a budget that was like 300, you know, less than that, it was sort of about $300 million at the time. Um, and I was gonna make it something bigger because, and particularly, I was going to use it as the bully pulpit to get attention to HIV AIDS. So I told the appropriate people who were picking that I'd be happy to take the job, but A, I have to still be able to see patients, and B, I have to continue to, to run my lab. And they said, my God, you can't do all three. Nobody's ever done all three. I said, fine, you know, then I won't do the job. So the rather, um, insightful director of the NIH at the time, a man named James Weingarten, said, okay, take, give it a shot. And that's really what I've been doing since. Under Anthony Fauci, the budget of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases went from that $300 million to now close to $5 billion. If I were a Wall Street mogul, I would get some kind of a golden parachute or something there, but not. So... What, what happened was a series of events, and that's why when I talk to uh, students and fellows, when I give commencement addresses, particularly at medical schools, I say, you really have to keep an open mind because a lot of times things that dramatically influence you in your life are things that you don't plan, they're completely unanticipated, and you have to have the training and the, and the insight and foresight to see that maybe this is an opportunity. Um, I did that when I stopped doing my 
autoimmune work and switched to HIV AIDS. I did that when I became the director of NIAID. And then I realized as a director of this institute, when you had challenges like outbreaks and influenza and anthrax and all those kinds of things, that what we needed was a scientist who was a serious scientist who could articulate to the White House, to the Congress, and to the public the kinds of things that are important and that we need. But being the public face of research for infectious diseases has put Dr. Fauci in the hot seat at times. If you're listening to this podcast and you were born after 1970, you may not remember or know about the years when so little was known about HIV that there was public hysteria. Maybe you could catch it from just touching someone infected or using the toilet seat they'd used. And there were also years of mass protests by those with the disease, gay activists and others, who were demanding more resources, more research, faster, better treatment, a cure. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, who was at the forefront of HIV-AIDS research, became their pincushion. There are three major things that control NIH research. Stupidity, incompetence, and greed. In that building down that way, Dr. Anthony Fauci is deciding the research priorities for the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. We're down here because we think we should be deciding the research priorities because these are the people who know what's going on because they're dealing with it every day. He was called a monster and worse. That was a very interesting period that has continued to the day because now those very activists are my, uh, you know, my dear friends, my comrades, my my collaborators. Uh, back then, uh, there were a couple of things that were going on that caused the activist community to galvanize and try to gain attention. Number one, the first administration of Reagan uh, didn't take this as seriously as they should have. Secondly, even as we got into understanding that it was a virus and we were developing drugs, the rigidity of the scientific community, the regulatory community, and even in many respects, the budgetary approach towards something was not commensurate with the reality and the potential for this catastrophe that was unfolding for us. And it, it triggered a sea change in the, both the scientific and the regulatory community. And I was sort of in the eye of that hurricane because I was so involved and devoted to doing something about this horrible thing that was happening that I became a very visible person I was testifying hundreds of times. I mean, I, I mean, literally hundreds. In total now, after the 34 years, 33 years I've been director, I probably testified before Congress more than anybody, purely because of the longevity of what I do. But there was constant that in the newspapers with interviews all the time. So my face was the face of the federal government. Most scientists would you know, do their thing and not be visible. And then it became clear that when we had clinical trials, we, the scientific community and the regulatory community, did not listen to them because they wanted to be part of the discussion of how you design a trial, of how you get a drug available or not. But no one was listening to them because it was at the time an attitude that many of us had, and I probably had it myself but I changed pretty quickly. And that was, we're scientists, we're regulators, we know better than you. So, you know, meanwhile, they have a disease, they see all of their friends dying, and we say, well, a new drug takes X number of years to get through the process of the standard clinical trial. And and activists were saying, wait a minute, if I look at my friends, I probably have about a year and a half to live. So, but yet no one was paying attention to them. So they decided that they were gonna gain the attention of the establishment. And since I was quite visible at the time. You were the establishment. uh, Yeah, I was the establishment. They decided that they were gonna focus it on me. 
Uh, and it was very interesting. Um, they focused it on me essentially because I was the head of the institute, but they also did it to some of the other scientists who ran for the hills, you know, like don't want to deal with them. So they got my attention. They did some amazing things, not only to me, but they, you know, in New York City, they closed down Wall Street. They broke into St. Patrick's Cathedral during the middle of a mass and grabbed the chalice from the priest. I mean, they did things to gain attention. Everybody thought that was horrible. But when I was looking at it and I was starting to read about the kinds of things that they were asking for, if you put aside the histrionics and the theatrics, they were making perfect sense. And we were the ones that were not getting it. Um, my attention was gotten by several things. You know, they've invaded the NIH and did with smoke bombs and things. And then there was one figure who was sort of like the grandfather or the father of the activist movement named Larry Kramer, who was a very well-known Academy Award-nominated screenwriter, a playwright, an author. And he wrote an article in the San Francisco Examiner, I think, the Sunday magazine section, which was just phenomenal. I still have a picture of it. It says, um, I call you murderer, an open letter to an incompetent idiot, Dr. Anthony Fauci, <laughs> the director of NIAID. So I said, whoo, that really got my attention. Uh, but even before that, I was starting to listen to the things that they were saying. And here's an example that Dr. Fauci gives. Early on, a good number of HIV patients were developing an infection that destroyed their retinas and caused blindness. So scientists developed a drug called gancyclovir and a drug trial to see if it would work. The only thing is, the Food and Drug Administration's protocol required patients in a trial to only be on the test drug. It was understandable, a way to get the most accurate results. But many HIV patients at the time were taking AZT, one of the earliest drugs developed against HIV, and that disqualified them from being in the gancyclovir trial. Now, the only ones who really needed that were HIV-infected individuals. And I remember something that just struck me so much, it was a major turnaround for me. And that is one of the activists from San Francisco, Marty Delaney, who was a phenomenal guy. I really related to him because he started off as a Jesuit priest and then dropped out, was a gay guy, and he was an activist. And he invited me to San Francisco and he said, I wanna show you something. So he took me to the Castro district and we went into the room of a, of a young man who was clearly debilitated from HIV, was being taken care of by his partner. And the guy was in bed. And again, I was the one that was felt to be controlling all of this, even though I didn't control it all. And he said, I'm on AZT and it's prolonging my life. I have cytomegalovirus in my eye and I wanna get on a protocol to get gancyclovir. But I'm told I can either be on AZT or I can be on gancyclovir, but I can't be on both. And he looked at me and he says, what kind of a choice is that? You're telling me I should either die or go blind, but I can't do both. And when he said that, I says, oh my God, this is really nuts. And that's when I became a real, almost confrontative activist against my own government that was not allowing these things to happen. And it was a tough road, and the road was tough because the scientific community was thinking that I sold out to the activists. And I had a lot of scientists who were saying, what the hell happened to Fauci? You know, he's, he's given in to these, to these crazy people who are stomping on the campus, but that was a good start because that gave me creds with the activist community. And then even though they did things that was still very iconoclastic, we developed a certain trust that has now stayed with us through the years. You know, amazing psychology of it. I mean, it's a lesson that, you know, in many respects is beautiful. I mean, I remember when the NIH was, was, um, invaded as it were they you know that that movie uh, that documentary how to survive a plague mm -hmm. 
they show the smoke bombs going off at the NIH. Well, a month before, one of the organizers, Peter Staley, who has become a, a, quite a good friend, I mean, a really good friend of mine right now, he, we used to bring him down to Washington, the activists, after we got rid of this confrontational thing. We used to sit down in my deputy's Capitol Hill townhouse. And we used to sit down and have a meal and talk about, you know, how are we going to reconcile these things? How are we going to get more money? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And um, he said, you know what we really need to do to gain attention? We're going we're gonna to just invade the NIH and, shut and throw off smoke bombs because we really, you know, want to create attention. And here I am having, having a glass of Pinot Grigio <laughs> with this guy. And he says, you know, I love you, Tony, but we're going to do it. And they did it. And they did it at the same time that we were friends. So they knew that that kind of iconoclastic stuff would gain attention. And only when you would gain attention. This is the same guy that put the giant condom over Jesse Helms' house. Remember that? They, yes, yeah. I do. <laughs> well, this is the guy who did that, yeah. So how come you didn't get in trouble at the NIH? Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I pre I'm pretty sure I know why I didn't get into trouble. When Vice President George H.W. Bush was vice president, he was preparing to run for president. And he came and asked the NIH director, um, who was Jim Weingarten at the time, I really want to learn a little bit about HIV. I hear there's this guy Fauci out there that I see on the news and stuff like that. Can I... This was in 1987, the beginning of 1988. He had already figured out he wanted to run for president. So he came to the NIH, and he introduced himself to me, and I showed him my patients. I brought him into the room. He came with Barbara. Also in that entourage was a young man named George W. Bush. He came to the, to the NIH, and we developed... A, a, a rapport and, and, a, and a friendship that I, I still to this day, you know, feel so blessed to having done that. He all of a sudden like started inviting me to the vice president's mansion, to Christmas parties, to brunches and lunches over south, and would call me up asking me advice about, you know, what about this in medicine? What about this? What do you think about that? And then when he became the president of the United States, the activists felt he wasn't doing enough for HIV. So they were getting pissed off at me because I was friends with the president. So Larry Kramer's famous thing is, you need to chain yourself to the gate of the White House and demand that we have much more money. And I say, Larry, I have a relationship with the president and gradually we're getting a lot more money. If I chain myself to the White House fence, you will feel gratified. I'll be a hero for 15 minutes, and that'll be the end of our access <laughs> to the White House. So anyway, I became very good friends with, 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 with the then president, and he would come to the NIH multiple times. So when I wanted to come out, and, and when I went to San Francisco and this guy told me, the way you're doing these protocols is ridiculous. You want me to either go blind or, or die? Um, Marty Delaney... Uh, who brought me to San Francisco, arranged the town hall meeting. And in the town hall meeting, as I was getting ready to go out, the press was really agitating. What are you going to do about this inability to access clinical trials? And there was a, a concept called parallel track, which Jim Igo, who was an activist from ACT UP New York, and Marty Delaney, who was an activist for Project Inform, were pushing for us. The FDA Korea people were deadly against it, understandably. In fact, I, I wasn't harsh with them because they said, that's not the way you do it. You can't do it. You'll violate the principles of a clinical trial. So as I was getting ready to go out on the stage, um, Marty, who I loved, um, um, I became his you know, consulting physician with him when he ultimately, ultimately died and a great, a great man. Um, he said, Tony, please get out there and do it. And do it means to say, I come out, that we have to change the way we do these clinical trials and we have to have parallel approaches for people who can't fit into a clinical trial to have access to the drugs 
without interfering with the scientific aspects of the trial. It was referred to as parallel track. So I went out there and I got up on stage and I said, I had scripted remarks, but I'm gonna throw them away. I said, let me just say that I'm convinced now with this visit that we really have to have a, a sea change in what we do. I didn't clear it with the White House. I didn't clear it with the FDA. I didn't clear it with anybody. Unbeknownst to me, right there was Randy Schultz, the guy who wrote the book and the band played on, and he was a reporter at the time for the San Francisco Chronicle or whatever. There was somebody from the LA Times and Gina Collada from the New York Times <laughs> heard about it. So the next thing I knew, it was like front page of the New York Times, leading NIH official, government official, goes against the FDA, this or that, and I said, oh my God, I really didn't think it was gonna have that much. So I flew back to the, took the red eye and flew back to the NIH. Wise. Yeah, wise. And when I got there, much to my, I thought it was dismay, I get a phone call from John Sununu, and John says, Tony, what, what happened out there? John Sununu was the chief was of staff. Was the chief of staff of the president. So I explained it to him. And I said, this is really the right thing to do. And the next thing he says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the boss and see what happened. And then the next thing I knew, I was asked down to the White House for something else. And the president says, you know, I think that was the right thing to do. Fast forward X number of years, I was given the public health something distinguished award for doing this. So I thought I was gonna get fired for it and it turned out I got an award. But, but you know, the, the relationship with, with, with uh, George H.W. Bush was really an interesting relationship because he wanted very much for me to be the director of NIH. And it was kind of an interesting situation where I didn't wanna do that because I didn't wanna get out of the AIDS business. I, I said, you know, Mr. President, please trust me, I can be a better service to you and to the country if I stay and do what I'm doing. And I thought that would be the end of my relationship with him and that would be the end of my access. And as it turned out, uh, he said something to me that made me realize what, a, what an amazing guy he, he, he is. He looked me in the eye and he said, you know, I've always respected you a lot for all you've done and doing and I respect you even more now. And I said, well, he's just saying that and then he's gonna forget about me. Like about two weeks later, he invited me down to a lunch at, at the White House. So you're not a politician or a political appointee. You're a physician and a scientist and an administrator. But in your position, you inevitably deal with politically difficult subjects. So first, let's talk about presidents. You've dealt with presidents Reagan, Clinton, two Bushes, and Obama. You're a frequent visitor to the White House on professional things. And the news you often bring is lousy. <laughs> and it's not the kind of news that presidents right. like to hear. How do you right. deal with that? Well, w what has happened, that was a decision I made upon advice from an old friend who actually spent several years in, in the Nixon White House. And that is you have got to be totally honest and give advice an analysis that you're asked to give that's based on evidence. And what this person told me was that what you need to do is that when you go to the White House, always say in the back of your mind that this may be the last time I'm going there because I might have to tell this president something he doesn't like. And sometimes you people, not only presidents, you tell them something they don't like, they don't wanna hear it and they don't ask you back again. And I developed a reputation in White House circles because, you know, the White House is an interesting place. Someone who's a junior staffer in this administration and two administrations later is going to be the deputy chief of staff. I mean, that's just the way it works. So I developed over the years a reputation that I would speak the truth and give you advice and discussion based on evidence and not on my trying to ingratiate myself with you. And people respect that. So I've had to tell presidents sometimes things that they didn't like, um, but they keep asking me back because they know I'm gonna give them an honest opinion. Have you met with President Trump? I have not yet met with President Trump, no. 
to give a couple of examples here, during the Ebola crisis, um, you actually took care of patients. Right. And at, the, the, at that same time, Governor Christie in New Jersey wanted to quarantine health workers who were returning to the United States after having treated people. And at, that, at some point, I mean, it was very hot and heavy for a, a week or 10 days. New Jersey and New York are going to determine the standards of quarantine since CDC's guidance is continually changing. And we need to set a standard for our two states. At some point, I think you must have persuaded him this is not a smart thing to do. Right. Right. I didn't directly, personally persuade him, mm -hmm. but what was going on was something that I would say dueling press appearances, not dueling directly against each other because I would be on many of the shows, you know, meet the press, face the nation, talking about things, and then he would be saying certain things. And I made it a point of saying, you know, because some in the press and others were trying to dump all over Governor Christie. And I was saying, you know, I can understand, and this is what I learned over years of being in Washington, I can understand that the motivation of Governor Christie of wanting to do that was to protect the health of the people of his state. So I don't think he had nefarious motives at all. However, what I want to make known to the people who are listening is that the evidence strongly points to the fact that that is not an appropriate response to someone coming back from, from an Ebola area with taking care of patients because Ebola is not spread by someone who is well and not coughing and bleeding and throwing up and having diarrhea. If you're well, you may be or not incubating Ebola but you're not gonna spread it to someone else. So that when someone came back, we had a very good protocol. They would take their temperature, they would know that if they got sick, they would go. And I did that when I was taking care of our Ebola patients for you know the, the, the few that couple that we had, one was very, very sick, is that I had took my temperature twice a day, every day, and reported it to someone uh, to make sure that I wasn't somehow accidentally incubating it. But to say that anybody who takes care of an Ebola patient automatically is quarantined, nobody would ever want to take care of an Ebola patient, and you would immediately drain the people who would be brave enough to go and do that. I want to return to the question we started with of what keeps Anthony Fauci up at night. And before hearing his answer, here's just a lesson I'm cribbing from him about why the battle against infectious disease will never actually be won. Microbes are extraordinarily adaptable, and that's because they have the evolutionary capability to replicate and mutate rapidly. Humans have the capability too, but it takes us 18 years or so. Using simple math, you can see why the microbes will always stay out ahead of us. So with that in mind... What keeps you up at night? Well, that's a question I get asked all the time, and, and the answer really is, you know, is, is almost always within this ballpark, is that the thing you get concerned about is an outbreak of an infectious disease that's respiratory-borne, that has a high degree of morbidity and mortality, such as a pandemic influenza. You know, in 1918, we had a devastating pandemic that at the time killed from 50 to 100 million people, which in a population back in 1918, that would spell out into a many, many, many more people. So that's the reason why we're doing things right now to try and develop more universal countermeasures against these things. And that's what we need resources for, which is the reason why it's a shame when you have budgetary constraints. And we're, like one of those things is what's called a universal influenza vaccine, namely a vaccine that's good against any strain of influenza, old strains, new strains, changing strains. That's something that we now have the scientific light at the end of the tunnel that we'll be able to do that. So yes, it keeps me up at night, that one of these days that might happen and it, you really wanna be prepared for it. And one of the ways to be prepared is for an investment in basic and clinical and translational research. I mean, that's what 
I think we all need to understand. What does that mean? What's the difference between trying to find a cure for AIDS and, quote, basic research? Every scientist I know, right. every doctor I know, thinks that basic research is terribly important. Right. Right. But it's the, in yeah, it's, it, it, basic research is probing. It's kind of like an incubator of new ideas for things in which you don't quite yet know what the applicability is going to be. But it's, it's probing the unknown. But I'll give you a really cogent example of basic research that has ultimately transformed diseases. So years and years ago, there were two investigators, Howard Temin and David Baltimore, who were working on trying to figure out how DNA, you know, when you're studying DNA codes for RNA, but what about if you have RNA, how does RNA reproduce itself? So because DNA is the factory that makes the RNA that makes the protein. So they were trying to figure out what this was, and they found out that there's an enzyme that no one had ever identified before. It's called reverse transcriptase. So it goes backward. It so happens, fast forward many years, reverse transcriptase is the enzyme that the HIV virus uses to get its HIV RNA to become DNA to get into your cell to start multiplying and making. So if they had not been doing basic research we would likely not have any of the drugs that we have now for HIV. And I can guarantee you that when David Baltimore and Howard Temin were working on reverse transcriptase, they had no idea that we would have an HIV AIDS epidemic many, many years later. And that's the beauty of the discovery. You just don't know. But if you shut off the basic research, then what you've done is you've shut off the incubator. And you only deal with things that you already have about new things that will happen in the future. You know, it seems that every time there is some sort of public health crisis, Ebola, HIV has gone on a long time, but um, flu, uh, whatever. An anthrax. Anthrax, exactly. Zika. Zika. There you are on the Sunday shows and on the newscasts every night. Um, the calm Tony Fauci, or you're testifying before, before Congress, you're dealing with alarmed presidents, alarmed governors, um, you're talking to the American public on TV, um, while at the same time you're seeing patients, you're overseeing your lab, you're teaching fellows, you're overseeing all the research at NIAID. Um, I know you can do a lot of stuff, but I gather you don't sleep very much. How much do you sleep? On a regular night, I sleep mm, about five hours, maybe a little, yeah, about five hours, five hours and 10 minutes. When we have, when we have crises, um, you know, it, the adrenaline is so high that when, I mean, there were certain crises components there that it harkened back to my internship and residency day where, you had to do the things that you mentioned, that my regular, quote, day job. You have to brief the president in the situation room. You get called down to the Congress by the leadership to brief them, sometimes individually, sometimes as a group. And then you got to go back down and be on Rachel Maddow uh, late at night. I mean, it's, it's one of those. So how do you organize your life? I mean, you're even just, just your professional life so that you can do those things. Um, in crisis times and in not crisis times, I just can't. I mean, I, I try to organize my life. I'm not anywhere near as successful as you are. So you must have systems. How do you do that? In the operation at the Institute, which remember is a $5 billion institute and we have a lot of responsibilities, malaria, tuberculosis, things like that. My style of leadership is that I set the fundamental principles of where I think we should be going. Um, I am very clear in what I expect. So the one thing that people will tell you in my institute, there's no ambiguity about where Tony wants to go with this. But balancing that 
I surround myself with the very brightest people I could find because I don't want to necessarily be the smartest person in the room all the time. I surround myself with the very brightest people and I don't micromanage them. I say, this is where we need to go. When it comes to things like the development of AIDS drugs, I said, here's what the goal is going to be. So there are certain things that I delegate I don't micromanage, and you pick the very best people. Um, I expect everybody to, to put 100% in. Uh, and and if, if, you're, if you're lazy, you're sloppy, you don't pull your weight, uh, you're going to have a problem with me. If you work hard, you're going to love me because I'll give you a lot of responsibility. I will recognize you, and I will be very good to you. There are certain things that you have to do, like when the Congress asks you to testify in the middle of a crisis like Ebola or Zika or anthrax, that just consumes a lot of your time. So if you're a micromanager or you don't have a vision and for some reason or other you get called away, then the people back there, they don't have any idea what they're doing. But when you make it really clear that here's where we're going, then in the middle of the anthrax attacks, which were, you know, we didn't know whether the next attack was going to be something that would wipe us out. I would say I spent more time in the White House in the Situation Room during that fall of 2001, because the anthrax came, remember, right after 9-11, that those few months that I literally lived in, in, in the White House and before congressional committees and on television trying to calm the public, Everything back home would have gone to pieces if I didn't have a group that I trained, that I gave them the vision, and that I didn't micromanage them so that they knew how to take care of things when I wasn't there. And I think that's really one of the major secrets of, of delegate the things, but don't delegate in a complete open-ended way. You say, here's where we're going. If you don't agree with that direction, tell me we'll discuss it and you might convince me that we want to go in a different direction, but then I won't micromanage you. And you go back to work after dinner? Uh, you know, I have a strange <laughs> uh, physiologic, I, I don't want anybody who's listening to this to have to do that. Um, you know, I usually, at times like that, I don't even leave, I don't even eat, I, I don't even leave work until, I mean, during the crises of Ebola when Nina Pham and Amber Vincent got infected and we were not sure whether they was going to be spread in this country. I mean, I was in my office until, you know, 11, 12 o'clock. Maybe I would grab, you know, a sandwich and do it. And, you know, I have, a, I have a spectacular wife who has been through all of these crises with me, who's a professional in her own right, who's been amazingly supportive and understanding of that. Sometimes you just can't, let's go home and have dinner type. It, it, it doesn't work. You don't go home and have dinner when you're in the middle of, a, of an anthrax crisis. Do you ever, ever think about retirement? No, no, I, I don't. Um, I'm just going to keep working until, until I, I, I feel, and I think I have a pretty good radar screen for that, that I'm not at the top of my game. And right now, I think I'm even more than on the top of my game because if you, if you keep your energy up, and you build on experience, that's really the ticket, you know? And, and I'm in a field where accumulation of knowledge um, and experience in difficult situations make you well-suited to play a very special role. Uh, if you don't learn from experiences, then, you know, you can just burn out and run out of, run out of time. But I, I don't really think about retiring. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much for your time. Good to be with you. My pleasure. Dr. Anthony Fauci, medical and public service pioneer. There really is no better word. Dr. Fauci is the director of the Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH, just outside of Washington, D.C. He's the winner of the National Medal of Science and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, both bestowed by President George W. Bush. Dr. Fauci spoke with NPR's Nina Totenberg for the Academy of Achievement in 2017. And I have to end on the last question Nina asked the good doctor. His answer earns him the final word. 
I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes. If heaven exists, um, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> That's assuming you're arriving at the pearly gates. Yes, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, you did a good job. I'm going to make you go back as Mickey Mantle. <laughs> <laughs> What It Takes is made possible with funding from the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. If you're on a road trip this summer, make sure to listen to our other episodes. You'll find amazing, inspiring figures in every field, from music to science to politics and lots more. Thanks for listening.